This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach developer for USA Hockey, Jim Haverstrom. He discusses the transition away from traditional coaching to a more constraints-led approach, the pathway for ice hockey players within the country, as well as the differences he's seen in the international coaching environment compared to the US. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. As we caught up off there, uh, off air there, Jim, I know that you're going to rub salt into the wound for a lot of UK people, that it's a nice 80 degrees outside and, uh, yeah, nice and so- sunny in Florida. But how are things your end? Are you all good? Everything's going really well. Perfect. So, um, as I said to you a minute ago as well, excited to have you on. First ice hockey person, been a really uh, hard nut to crack in terms of getting into the industry and stuff but I think a really interesting uh, conversation to have in terms of skill development but also the game and how you structure it different roles and all of that type of stuff and, and obviously with some of the experiences that you've had I think this would be a really really fascinating conversation for people that maybe don't know you do you just want to give us a kind of an overview of who you are and, and what you do yeah I gave my um I've been involved with youth hockey for about 23 years uh, as a hockey director. Before that, I coached for four or five years before that. And before that, I was a musician. Um, so, but it was a, I think in some ways a pretty good transfer because being a musician is very similar to being an athlete. You're in a performance setting. You have to perform under pressure. Um, it's creative. Um, so in many ways, and it's, you're using, you know, all sorts of different coordinating all different sorts of muscles in your body. So it, it's very similar. Um, but as I, I started out as a hockey director with limited knowledge, you know, just like anyone else, uh, I was lucky that I thought I was progressive um, and that I would look to other areas. You know, I didn't look just what we were doing in North America. I would study what they were doing in the Czech Republic at the time or what was still the Soviet uh, Soviet Union just in Sweden because it seemed like they were creating players, especially like Sweden, with le- they were creating more NHL players with less people playing. And it's like, what are they doing that is different that I could try to incorporate? Um, and over those years, I've been to four or five different programs. I um, was in Colorado Springs, where USA Hockey is based when they brought out the ADM model, which was the American Developmental Model, which was a big shift in the way we trained kids. Um, and along with that, I also became a coach developer for USA Hockey, where I would give you know different workshops to our coaches to give them ideas of you know better coaching concepts, and which has been a lot of fun because it's been fun to watch USA Hockey change how we are delivering that message to our coaches, where we went from this is what to coach to how to coach, uh, which was a big huge shift in in the way we you know we were sending that message out. Perfect. And so for people that don't uh, have a grounding in terms of what ice hockey looks like in the States, obviously, most people be aware of NHL right at the very top in terms of professional and stuff. But could you just talk through us what like a traditional journey may look like for an individual who you know starts out at five, six years old wanting to play hockey to if they were to make it to NHL, what that pathway actually looked like? Yeah, it's 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 very unique for North American sports. Uh, obviously, nobody you know 
is born with skates on. So they go very often, they'll go through like a learn to skate program where they learn the basics of skating. And then they'll go to a learn to play program where they learn how to stick candle, where they learn how to do the technique of passing, um, where they all might skate around cones. And that's a kind of a traditional look. And then they'll progress into, you know, what we call usually recreational leagues at first, where every kid plays the same. Um, and from there, the recreational leagues will continue up to 16 or 17. But we start with what we call travel, where we start culling kids at seven, six and seven and saying that you're elite and you get more eyes to get better, you know, theoretically better coaching. And those kids, depending on where they live, will every weekend will travel, you know, sometimes big distances. If, you, if you're in non-traditional areas like here in Florida, you may be traveling four or five hours to play a game. Uh, if you're up in Minnesota, you've traveled 20 minutes, you know, that kind of stuff. And then a lot of these travel teams, especially now are also getting on planes four or five times a year to go play a, a team, you know, play in tournaments across the country. And if it, and we tier that into what we call tier two, which usually have like A and, you know, A and double A levels. And then we have what we call tier one, which is your triple A, uh, where those kids, are theoretically the more competitive or the the higher level of you know ability players um and then the ones that want to go on to play either professional or college hockey usually then have another step which is junior hockey so if a kid's 16 17 18 they'll go on and play for a junior team and there's various tiers of that um and those tiers relate to how much a child or the, the player has to pay to play they're what we call pay to play junior leagues where you pay for everything there's our tier two where the you get to play for free but you're you have to pay for your billet you know your family that you live with and then tier one everything is like being almost like a mini pro all your equipment all your your billet families all that's taken care of and so we have a lot of kids where traditionally in the united states a basketball player a football player will start college at 18 the junior hockey player will start college at 20, 21 sometimes. So, which is beneficial for the, the college coach because he now gets a man. <laughs> he gets a kid who's lived away from home, understands what it's like to live away from home, may even know how to do his laundry, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, it's very different than the traditional sports, you know, thing. Now, if a kid wants to go into the pro ranks, they may either go you know, through the college ranks, or they may go straight from junior and get drafted into the pro ranks and then go through the minor leagues or go, you know, depending on their level of ability. Perfect. Yeah, I think it gives us a really nice ground in terms of what what that pathway, et cetera, looks like. And then in terms of we describe it as the larger culture, what would you say, um, I guess, the culture in hockey is? Is it a very experimental sport? Is it um quite traditional in the way it works is there been a shift what what does that look like culturally in terms of hockey um right now it's still there's very i'd say a high percentage is traditional still but it is changing usa hockey is the governing body um and as a coach developer who helps you know give clinics we are definitely doing a shift from the idea of teaching kids to learn by going through around cones, skating in lines to now a more ecological approach. I mean, in our level five, the dreaded word ecological dynamics was even brought up 
you know, and uh, our speakers were geared toward that. Uh, Stuart Armstrong was one of our keynote speakers. And then I would say 80% of the, uh, the, the breakout groups and speakers were talking about how do we learn? What is skill, you know, as opposed to going around cones, you know, or is skill being a golfer who's, who, what they do is they're a long driver and then, but they don't play the game. You know, that kind of stuff was the idea of how do we get kids to learn? We did a lot of off ice stuff where we played little games like this might teach a player now. Hey, what is this teaching the player? This is teaching the player to, you know, get open, to, to move, to think. Um, so we're really trying to push that. Um, and I think some of the younger coaches are starting to grasp onto that. And even some of the ones at that level five, there was a lot of coaches who had never been exposed to this kind of training who were saying like, you know, this makes sense. So I, I see as we, we will get more progressive, but for those coaches that haven't been exposed to it, it's still going to be, you know, take time. Yeah. And it seems like a similar journey to, I think that a lot of sports have been on in terms of that quite drill orientated in terms of, yeah, you know, if we do this and it's going to get better at their passing rather than giving them an opportunity to explore that within the setting. Um, in terms of how uh, within the country or compared to other countries, as you mentioned earlier, do you see a difference in play styles or capabilities? I know, for example, I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan and Greg Popovich for a long period of time mentioned how they used to go abroad because it was far more pass orientated and it allowed the the, the foreign players or international players to have the understanding of how to create space, utilize it and shift the ball. Whereas American basketball had become more 1v1 orientated, which in ISOs is fine, but then presented challenges within their system. So from a, I guess, a skill development perspective, did you see differences between areas of the country or compared to international um, arenas? What did that look like? I saw a lot of difference in international. Um, certain countries, what's interesting to me is certain countries like Finland all of a sudden became relatively dominant for the amount of players they were putting out. Um, so they had actually gone back in and redone how they train players. And their idea was we're not getting enough players to the NHL markets, you know. Um, and so they broke down everything they were doing and, and decided that they would develop as many players as possible at every age. And to, and their feeling was that since we don't have many players, we better develop them all because we don't know who's going to be the best player later on. And, and that we're going to develop them to be hockey players, not just like hockey robots where they, and same with Sweden where I noticed we had a lot of Swedish kids come over for some summer camps and they would approach these little two V two games, like, way over the heads of our kids and they weren't necessarily more more technically skilled they just moved they loved to compete it was like this is what they were used to doing all the time and they moved the puck a lot quicker that but so i stopped thinking about it it's like okay why and part of it was is because that's the way their practices were set up you know i remember having coaches come to me and complain that their team couldn't the, the passing in the game was awful I'd go watch their practice and they're doing these really nice scripted passing drills where there's nobody in the way and they're looking really good in practice, but it wasn't, you know, going over to the game and they were wondering why, you know, and it's like, well, put somebody in the way. And as silly as this sounds, 
as coaches, we learn a lot of things by mistake. And I remember I was teaching like little kids and we always have these things with little kids. We'll line them up five feet apart from each other and they pass the puck going back and forth and pucks are literally going everywhere. Nobody's catching a pass. Nobody's passing it right. And by accident, I skated through them. Now, the first time they kind of hit my skates. And after that, every pass was like tape to tape. And I'm like, like, why? You know, I realized that, well, they had to lift their heads up and they had to look and make a decision. And not only did the passes get more accurate, I started looking at their technique and their technique got way better because they weren't thinking about it. And it's so it's, you know, that's when I started thinking that, you know, what they were doing over in Europe makes way more sense because now the kids are actually playing the game, learning the technique, but learning to move it into a game quickly. So that way, you know, and, and to do that along with trying to develop every player and spend as much time and effort with kids who are theoretically still playing in our rec leagues at, at 10 and 11 and 12, you know, just increases the player pool. So it sounds like from a European perspective in particular, they, they kind of did more small-sided games, as we would call them in, in, in soccer, if you like, or football. Um, and so kind of isolate it off 2v2s, 3v3, 1v1, allowing them to explore in those environments. And you can obviously make pitches bigger, smaller, uh, and do that. What, I guess, if you're looking at traditionally, what would a practice look like in the States? Like, obviously, what I'm conscious of is you have um rink time with other people in and around it you can have multiple groups it's obviously gonna be not cheap with all the gear and stuff so what would a i guess a traditional practice actually look like i mean how did these small-sided games then challenge what that what that framework was a, a traditional practice would kind of look like okay we're going to start off with 10 or 15 minutes of skating that may or may or may, or may not have the puck uh, it could be that we're all going to skate around circles. You know, we're going to, well, I used to love it. They'd skate around one circle, go to the next, go to the one in the middle, and then go one down the other end. And by the time they got to the last circle, nobody's skating fast at all anymore. Um, or they get in lines and we're going to practice this technique and we're going to practice that technique. Um, and we're going to make it perfect. Although when I would watch 99% of the kids wouldn't be doing it necessarily perfect because there's so many kids going, there's no correction. Uh then you would have, could be, depending on the age, now you got a puck, we're going to go around a bunch of cones because we're going to, you know, learn how to stick handle. We're going to learn how to make turns with the puck. Uh, very often after that, you'd have five on old play, three on old play, you know, then maybe go into three on two. You go into two, you know, two on one type play. And there'd be either a small area game at the end or like a, a full ice scrimmage. Um, a lot of scripted, a lot of this is what you do. And even in the games, it'd be like uh, a lot of the times is the coach is sitting there stopping it right away. You guys are in the wrong place. You know, I'm going to fix it. I'm the coach. Um, and not that players didn't get good. Some players, you know, players got good. It's just that they probably could have got better or more of them could have got better. Um, there weren't a lot of decisions made in practice. And that was we became, I know we used to, coaches would joke, this kid is the world's best cone player. We've never seen a kid better going around cones. We used to joke that here in Florida that our kids are great cones players. And up until 10 years old or 11, you can win often with cones players because they're just faster. They're more skilled, you know, as far as 
having to be able to to skate around somebody. But when the game got older, when you had to think and make decisions and compete, those players would struggle. So when you're now adding in the more small-sided game type stuff, what what would the sessions now look like for those coaches that have really embraced this type of um, training methods or really on board with actually we want to high levels of decision making, we want to make it a little bit more chaotic, we're going to try and reduce the number of predetermined skill practices, if you like. What would their now, I guess, n- more nuanced um, practice look like? Excellent question. Um, Like you'll see some coaches, they may start out with everybody has a puck and you're from the blue line down and now you're skating and you're just skating around, keeping your head up, you know, and then you may add somebody's trying to knock the puck away. Uh, So they're, they're still skating. They're making tight turns. They're going forwards. They're going backwards. So they're working on a lot of their skating, but in a game like context uh, from that, or they may open depending on the, you know, a coach they might do like keep away games you know like my my team needs to get the puck to that side just you know we have to get we have got to pass it one time on our side but after that you can pass it across the line um so they're getting them moving them getting them working on the, all their techniques but it's not in a in a lines they're making decisions from the very beginning of practice um i always like to look at it you know, I've, I've talked with coaches. We they will say, well, we're going to play at the game at the end. That's a reward. I, I'd rather look at it as like a, a seven-course meal where the appetizer is awesome. Everything else fits in in the game. And if you're playing whatever at the end, that's just a chirp. You know, that's dessert. So they all start out fun. They all start out where you're learning. You're all competing. Um, you're making decisions. Uh, and what really started to change me was was – you know, listening to a lot of podcasts, especially during um, COVID, where if you're home alone, great. You know, you want to go around a cone, that's okay. But if I have people to compete against, why aren't I using them? You know, why are they standing in line? Why Why am I going to make a move on a cone? Uh, I literally saw somebody on Instagram say, here's a drill to manipulate defenders and the kids coming on, on a, against a tripod and making a move. So who is he manipulating? It's like, I get the idea. I understand what he's trying to say. And there were seven kids in line behind him. It's like, why not, you know, manipulate a defender? Yeah, no, I, you're, um, I can imagine, I've got a game that I do with the the football guys over here. Um, it's called Skills Corridor, which is a, re- it's a really nice game that the younger ones love. So basically you have, um, it's like 10 metres wide by maybe 20 metres long in a rectangle. You start two groups off, um, one at each end, and then, then maybe there's a couple of defenders in the middle. And basically everyone has a puck and you've got a minute to try and get up and down as many times as you can with the puck. The defenders, if they win it, then become the attackers and then the attacker who lost it then becomes the defenders. And I can just imagine that in terms of, a skill piece of what you mentioned there, rather than having a tripod that you're just dribbling at, imagine having five people from the other end running towards you and you've got to try and dodge them whilst getting your head up to figure out where you're going to put the puck would be far more chaotic and enjoyable and uh, decision-making based and skillful than just going around a, a cone or a tripod. So yeah, I can imagine there's like a lot of crossover between football and hockey in that space to be allow those types of games to take place. 
Yeah, very much so. Uh, a couple of years ago, I took over our 8U more advanced kids and I used them basically as our lab rats. I hate to say that, but that was my lab rat. That was my laboratory. And luckily for me, uh, the general manager of the, the NHL team's kid was there and a future Hall of Famer's kid was there. And they loved what I was doing because their kids loved coming to practice. And like if we were going to work on crossovers, which is a technique to go around circle to, to where we, you cross over one foot over the other to, to pick up speed or to go around a circle, we do like duck, duck, goose, where one kid, you know, taps his head and then chases the other one around the circle. And we find that the crossovers would emerge because that was the best technique to get them to catch the kid in front of them. Now, when I would try to do a circle drill with these kids, it was a disaster. <laughs> you know, it was like they just didn't either. They're too busy trying to figure out what their body's doing. They're not having fun. And we did a lot more to get kids stuff to emerge. You know, uh, I remember doing drills where I throw the puck in the corner. Two kids would chase it. And the idea was whoever got the puck would skate through these two tires while the other one's trying to angle them away, which is a game like situation. And you'll get people say, well, seven and eight year old can't figure it out. Well, they can. And I remember doing it, throwing the puck in the corner, watch this kid look over his shoulder to make sure he beat the other kid to the puck, sealed his body off against the wall. So the other kid couldn't get the puck and skate through the, through the tires. And I'm like, I ran up to his dad who was an ex NHL player. I said, did you, I can't believe what I just saw. <laughs> you know, it's like an eight year old big, making a play like a pro player would who normally would not get a chance to even try to do that stuff until he was later, you know, until he was much older, you know, or we'd play games with a ringette, which is like a big circular uh, with a, with a hole in the middle where they turn their stick over and then they can control the puck or the ringette. So now they can, they're not worrying about the puck and their eyes are up. And I see kids make spin moves, uh, keep the, make uh, protect the puck like they never would. And or even worse, I never thought they had that skating technique. I didn't think they could do it. And they would just do it because that's what the situation called for. No, I think it's a really nice, as you said, just getting those moments where you see actually this can or, or will work. Um, in terms of uh, players being pigeonholed in terms of positions and stuff, what does that look like within within hockey? Because I'd say in the UK with, with, it, with football, we are trying to make an active effort not to go down that route, but although it does still some does still happen where people will go, oh, they're a defender and they end up playing 95% of their minutes in defender. So what does that look like in hockey? Is that a similar issue? Yeah, it, it actually is. We try to encourage coaches, especially from 10 and under, and even really a 12 and under, not to pigeonhole a kid in as a, a forward or a defender, you know, with the, because we want them to be able to play we want them to play all different positions. The issues that happen with it is that it can affect us winning on Saturday, you know? And so coaches get nervous and it's not just the coaches, they get nervous because there's a lot of pressure from the parents or, you know, my kid's a defenseman. Well, my kid's a forward. And then it's nobody wants to be a defenseman because the goal, the, you know, the goal scorers are the forwards and, you know, that part of saying my, my kid's a goal scorer. But if you watch the pro game today, it's not positionless hockey, but it's kind of interchangeable. You know, there'll be times you're watching a hockey game and the defensemen who, while they're attacking, are down by the other team's net, both of them. And you're like, that never would have happened years ago. But it's 
Now somebody else takes their place and they move and they move around. So if the children actually got more of a chance to play these different positions, it would make them better. Um, we kind of joke now in the, in the NHL, the only way you can, you can tell who's a defenseman is that's where they line up on the faceoff when you first start out, you know, in the possession, because once the game starts, everybody's moving. Why do you um, think that transition's taken place? Why do you think it's become more free flowing? I think it's, you know, uh, even though we're relatively tradition oriented, we look to things like soccer. I mean, this honestly, this is the way the old Soviet Union teams used to play in the 70s. You didn't know who, you know, everything was keep the puck as long as possible. We're not throwing it away. Guys are moving around. Guys are going in the zone, out of the zone. Um, and I think, you know, and as hockey, it also becomes a, uh, especially the professional level, it becomes a copycat league. So once somebody is doing that and it's successful, then other people start to follow that. Um, now in youth hockey, you still, maybe it, you still don't, you still may see more of a traditional idea because coaches get nervous that, oh, this kid, you know, he's not where he's supposed to be. And instead of looking at the other players and say, hey, if he moves here, you need to look and see how that affects where you go, you know? So it's, it's much easier to coach it the other way. Um, and then again, the idea that most of these kids, I mean, when I would coach a lot of the kids, if we did defenseman type drills, I would have forwards being the defenseman. I didn't care. It's just, we're just learning a skill. You're 10 years old. You know, I'm going to put you in this situation. I don't know if you're going to be a defenseman later on. Um, uh, Rasmus Dahlin, who was a first round pick in the NHL draft, his dad said he didn't start playing defense in Sweden until the year before the draft. So, you know, it's like, obviously you can learn to play those positions. Now there's nuances, but you know, those can be developed. Yeah, I think it's it's really, yeah, as you mentioned, that that a year before the draft seems extreme. But if you've got a technical base, particularly this in football, then it's going to support you. One thing that does fascinate me with, with hockey in general and what you probably mentioned there is around the physical side of it. So obviously hockey is an inherently physical sport. How do you at those younger age groups and working your way through help them understand physical contact and be more comfortable with it? Not saying that obviously you're going to go and smack them into a board or anything like that, but understanding that you're going to get nudges that are going to put you off balance where you might trip over and actually embrace that because some kids are obviously going to be inherently nervous of that type of contact. No, that's that's a fantastic question. And we've really changed the way we think we approach with USA Hockey. Um, we actually pushed back the age of full check, which you would think would mean, oh, we're doing less with body contact. But while we pushed that year back, and that rod had to do with cognitive ideas of kids being able to protect themselves, we've increased the concept of body contact and really tried to push it down to the youngest ages. That, you know, we're going to fight for pucks. We're going to, you know, we're going to bang into each other. We're going to fall down. And realistically, when a six-year-old falls down, they don't have that far to fall. <laughs> They've got all this equipment. And if they start getting used to it then, then realistically, the, the main difference between body contact and, and full check is that where you're following through, you're, you're not just battling, you're actually trying, you know, you're, it's, you know, you're, you're trying to not launch the other player, but you're really, you know, it's, it's a lot more, uh, a lot more physical. 
but the body contact aspect of it is, yeah, you can bump, you can grind. And we're really trying to push that at the younger ages. Now, what's tough is I would hate to be an official at those ages because it's hard to sometimes tell is that, you know, a body check or is that a, is that body contact? So we get confusion there and then we get mixed signals and, you know, and then coaches are like, well, I don't want to work. You know, I don't want to have this because it's going to, my kid's going to go to the penalty box and we might get scored on, but we are really trying to push this. And by having those small area games, there's a lot more contact. We put them in smaller areas where they, almost have to compete where they have to battle for pucks. So they feel comfortable. Um, and then if you're coaching like a 12 U team, which is the last year where there is no full body check, you can start working on actual full body checking in practice, you know, so that we're, we're putting them in a little safer situations. We can maybe take some of the emotion out of it at first. Um, again, we have pushback from coaches who say, well, that's not going to help me on Saturday. Because or they'll say, well, if they do full check in practice, it's going to carry over to the game. Um, again, they don't give kids credit because when we go throw out the puck and let them play, you know, like in just a pickup situation, they're not blowing each other up. <laughs> they know that they can't do that. You know, so it's it's more of an excuse, I think, on the coaches, coaches thing. But in a game, even at the NHL level, the big hit isn't as often. And that's because we're trying to make it a possession-based game. And if we're making the big hit, not only do we knock the player off the puck, we take ourselves out of it and we don't gain possession. So we're trying to do it more where if I have initiate body contact, my goal is to come away with the puck, not just just, just uh, leave it out. We used to be, we blow them up years ago. Then it went to separate the man from the puck or the player from the puck. Now it's, we want to gain possession of the puck through body contact. And do you see um, any individuals become increasingly nervous if they've done, say, like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of this contact element, and then when they get to twelve and they can feel that check coming, do you see any individuals that uh, become nervous about that? And do you guys have any strategies around that, or is it just hoping that that exposure for prolonged actually they feel comfortable when they get to U twelve? Yeah, well, it's it's with. It ends up happening when they turn 13 is when they start body checking. But yes, uh, we do see kids that feel nervous. And I think part of it, some of it can actually come from some of their the parents, not in a negative way, but they'll mention it to their kids. Are you okay? You know, this is going to be full body check, you know. And the idea that a lot of programs aren't necessarily working a lot on body contact or emphasizing body contact when they're younger. So if, if they're coming through a program that says, okay, next year you're going to be 13. We're going to do a weekend body uh, checking clinic and we're going to get you ready for next year. It's like, that. that's not going to do it. Um, I also truly believe that programs that spend more time working on decision-making and smaller games, those kids feel more comfortable with body contact because they're more aware. They don't get blown up as much because their eyes are up. They're feeling, they're seeing the situation. Um, uh, and the fact that too, USA hockey has now, I wouldn't say we've changed our rules. We're now enforcing rules where if the play, if you don't attempt to play the puck, it's a penalty. 
So the, whereas before, you know, they, you just light somebody up, you know, they could have just let go of the puck. Well, you know what? There's like a, a three second rule and we can nail you, you know, now in the pro ranks, that's, you know, different. And that's where you get some pushback. Well, when they get to the pros, well, like most of these kids aren't. So let's make it a, a safer environment for them and where they feel more comfortable. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And then in terms of the maturation side, how are you able to manage that? Because I'd imagine you're going to have some, um, let, listen, let's use the generic. You're going to have some defensemen who are massive and want to go around trying to light people up. And then you might have some forwards that are smaller, more agile at the moment, able to stop and change direction, are highly skillful with their decision-making and stuff. How do you manage that in terms of that disparity of size? Have you got strategies as an organization or as areas to be able to counter that? Or um, Again, you, that's, that's always an issue because you get that one kid at 13 who's five foot nine, you know, and the other kid's still four foot six, you know. So there is, there's not much we can really do about that other than trying again to put kids in situations as early as possible to realize um, how to protect themselves. And that's part of what we do too with, with our body contacts, not just about giving body contact, but how do you absorb a hit? How do you avoid putting yourself in that situation? How, you know, if, if I'm a shifty agile skater, how am I going to deceive the opponent or manipulate the defender so he can't hit me? You know, and so we try to give those players tools uh, that, you know, it's almost like a constraint. Well, your body is this way, so we're going to use that not as a negative, but how can you take that thing that, okay, now you got to learn to manipulate. You've got to learn how to do this so that you don't put yourself in those situations. But especially anywhere, you know, even at our 12Us, you get a lot of kids who are huge and ones that are little. Um, and and then when they get to 13 and 14, it's like off the charts, you know. So it, that does make it hard in a physical sport. I know like in football, American football, they have certain things where it's weight classifications. Uh, ideally, you know, maybe there are situations where you could go to where it's not necessarily age-based, but it's so hard to do that. And then you go in, I, I hate to say this, but then you get into situations where people manipulate that to the benefit of winning, you know? So it's like, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. It's, but again, I really do think that the more decision-making we give them, it makes it easier for players to be in a safe position. And when you're looking at trying to prepare um, people for that that final step, if you like, so I'm not going to say NHL because there's obviously going to be adult hockey that plays by similar rules and stuff that you're trying to prepare them for, which, you know, might not, they may get lit up or something like that. There may be, you know, more aggression, some older school things, stadiums, there might be fans, etc. cetera. Um, is there any particular strategies you guys use to try and help them? Like when you know they're around that 16, 17, 18 ages, uh, years of age, where you know that that may be a next step for them and they need to understand what is coming. Is there anything you can do in that space? Is there anything you do in that space? I, I would think, you know, the best way to say is, is we do start to call the players as they get older, just like any other sport. So for those that may be going on to junior hockey or going on to play college or, you know, be a minor pro, they're playing against more competitive players, you know, and they're playing against more highly technical players. 
And so, and they may play at those ages, whether it's good or not, anywhere from 50 to 80 games. Some teams may play more, you know, so they're getting used to, you know, they'll see that kind of competition. They'll understand where it's, where it's coming from. Um, and then in game, in the practices, we're really trying to change the, the concept of it. We used to always hear from college coaches or pro coaches, these kids need to compete more. They, uh, you know, we want kids that compete. You know, we always, that be the big word. I want smart players who compete. And then we'd go back and look at our practices and we weren't doing anything to force them to compete. We'd start drills with a puck on your stick instead of like, well, you got to go get it, you know? So as we change our practices and make them more competitive, make it where they're maybe in smaller areas where they, you know, you're going to have to bang for pucks. You're going to have to play what we call along the wall, which is, or the, or the yellow, which is that yellow strip along the bottom of the, the, the boards on the, on the rink is they're going to have so many more repetitions in that, you know, physical part of the game that it becomes second nature and, and also teach takes away some of the fear because one of the things you learn in hockey, and I know that I did, because I played at a buck 25. I mean, I was 125 pounds when I was 18 was it didn't hurt as much as I thought it did. The anticipation was way worse than actually doing it, but we didn't do it in practice. It's like, we're not, you know, so it's like the only time I'd see it would be on the weekend and some 175 guys come pound, come coming after me. And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, this, this isn't going to be good. So, but now we're, we're doing everything we can to force them to compete force body contact at, you know, at all ages. I like the idea of having it where they don't start with a puck as well, or they don't start with a thing. Can you turn that into a battle before you then try and do a particular technique? And obviously you mentioned earlier about that race to then get through the tires or something like that. I think that's a, that's a really nice piece, which you can utilize in a lot of sports. I'm thinking of, of football. Now you could do that. You could do that in basketball. If you needed to, you could do that uh, in rugby. There's, there's loads of different sports that involve contact that actually you could have it as the first bit is, can we gain possession of the ball before we then figure out what we're actually trying to achieve within the, the skill session. Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's a really nice piece. When I teach our coaching education classes, I often ask like, our like, do you guys have an issue with your team, one of your, your players going to get the puck? And some will raise their hand and I'll just say quickly, you're all liars who didn't raise your hand because we all have that issue. But I said, then how many drills do we start where the kid has the puck on his stick? I mean, even if you want to do a drill that's, that is isolated, why not start it by them going to get the puck, you know, throwing, they have to go get it. You know, it's not, I'm, because in our sport, you never start with the puck on your stick. I mean, it's not like after, after a goal, they give it to you like in basketball and you start, you got to go get it. And we, we don't look at that aspect of our practices sometimes as an important part of our game. Yeah, no, I'm thinking now I do a lot of 1v1s where it starts where the person who defends gives it to the attacker. It's actually not a great precedent to set because you're saying you've given the ball away, you've got to go and get it back, whereas it could be actually the ball has just not fallen to you. Can you get it back? It's a small distinction, but actually makes makes quite a bit of difference, I think. Um, lost my train of thought there. That, no, I, I know what I was going to say. In terms of at the very top level, um, and you're looking at those NHL teams, how much uh, support or uh, notice, et cetera, do they place, uh, place on the regional hockey? 
So did they do anything uh, to actively help the community or is it more of a pay-to-play model, as you mentioned earlier, and then when they get to the point where they might begin to draft them, then they'll pay interest in college and all that type of stuff? So the the NH, like I worked for an NHL team. We had a youth program. So their involvement, what, I mean, there's not a ton of involvement. I'm not saying there wasn't any, you know, their the NHL programs are more like into grassroots where they're building, building fans. Um, they'll have lots of, they'll have try hockey for free programs like the Panthers, Florida Panthers. We ran a try hockey for free uh, uh, program where for like $150 or no, I think it went up to $200. They would get six classes and all the gear, which the, the gear itself costs more than the class. What was the idea? Because that's a barrier for people to join. It's like I'm not going to buy all this hockey gear and then have my kid go on the ice and and not want to do it. And what was also good about the program is the length of it, because very very often that first week you got a lot of crying kids. It's like, what am I doing? I'm lost. I'm. But then once they do it, then by week six they show some proficiency, and now okay, yeah, this is fun, you know. Um, so that the the nhl is doing an excellent job in that aspect of it but unlike um european clubs it's not like we have an academy for each team that's these players are they're being you know groomed to to move up the ladder to that team um north american system is very different um and we don't have like even certain areas there's no access to the nhl team you know the, the nhl again will send out these learn to play programs fairly large distances depending on where they are you know but it's not as as active or the idea that you know I, i'm grew up playing hockey in florida that i'm going to be playing for the florida panthers now we have had some kids that have actually gone to our program and played for the florida panthers but that's more happenstance than you know planned that's where they got drafted yeah i think <clears throat> It's a really interesting uh, time because, as you said, the American model is so different to the academy system. And I know some of the MLS clubs are trying to um, bring it in in the soccer context. But you've got the NCAA, for example, which is such a powerhouse that actually a lot of the players are going to go there because, you know, their local college teams who they've always wanted to play for. or They want to go to Duke or want to go to Stanford and then they want to get into the program uh, pro ranks that way rather than going via the MLS. So it's really interesting to hear that they probably do, uh, the NHL teams probably do better than what we do over here, which is like real grassroots bits of supporting people as an entry level because they know that's how you're going to get fans and bums on seats, um, more so than it being a, oh, well, we'll get you in because you're going to be a nine-year-old who's signed to our academy. Yeah, and our U.S. our college market has changed now so much with the national with the uh, the likeness, the NILs, where a kid can be now in college and making a million dollars based off of his likeness. So that's, you know, there may not be that rush to, to get to the, you know, the NFL. You know, we know that I can stay or, you know, I can stay in college another year and, and I might actually make more because I may be a bust <laughs> at the pro level, but I'm really successful at the college level. And that's changing you know, way people are approaching stuff, even with the transfer portals now where kids play, you know, can leave a school after one, you know, go wherever they want. That I saw a thing today where college recruiters, they don't give out, they, like if they had 20 scholarships, they would have 20 scholarships for freshmen. Well, they don't do that anymore. They hold five or six for the transfer portal. 
So now where are these young kids going? They don't know, you know, it, there's less opportunity sometimes to break in. Yeah, and no, it is interesting. I can't remember the, the name of the kid, but he mentioned how, um, I think today, he goes, if you offered any general person a 10 grand wage rise, they, they'd take it. Because that's why I'm going to Kansas. I'm getting more money. Yeah, and, man, I'm an alumni from Kansas, so I'm okay with that. So, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah it, was, it was a real interesting one that, that I read that I come across. In terms of, I guess, the future of the game, then you've mentioned a little around at the top level, um, I guess, interchanging of positions and becoming more fluid, obviously, kind of throughout the pathway in terms of some strategies to try and make it, um, you know, more more competitive at times, but also trying to stagnate that across and the, the approach rather than it being so drill based. Where do you think this will end up for US? hockey in comparison to what the Europeans are currently doing. I think what's happening now is everyone in the world is going to this more fluid style of play. Uh, it used to be in hockey too, that you'd have your first, your top six line, uh, forwards were the ones that were really skillful. Your third line was, could do either. And your fourth line was what we call checkers, very much defensive specialists. Now every line can score. Now, you know, the, the the fourth line is still got incredibly skilled athletes. Now, they still may have a, a different posture in the team where they are used in more defensive situations, but they're still an offensive threat. Um, defensemen used to be if you were big and strong and you could just, you know, you know, it used to be if, if you stood in front of the net, it was legal to basically mug you, you know. Um, and as the rules tightened up, it changed uh, that. We have a lot of top level NHL defensemen who are 5'10, 5'11. That was unheard of. I remember talking to my son's junior coach about he ever, you know, he was really skilled and very good at getting the team out of his zone by making really good passes, you know, and finding open guys. And I asked him because he would use them on the power play to do that, where he will start more lineup with the defenseman. So would you ever think about making making him a defenseman on the team? Oh no, he's not big enough. You know, today that wouldn't have mattered. You know, so it's I think it's just going to get almost more fluid. But what happens in the pro ranks, too, is coaches want to keep their jobs. So they're going to find a way to try to defend against it. And as they that, that's what always seems to happen. Anytime there's a big offensive change, the coaches try to find ways to make it so almost like boring <laughs> so they can stop it, you know. Um, but I with the skill of the players, it's almost like they're going to demand that it continues to to at least evolve this way because uh, it's more fun to play. Um, and what also I think is a really good, you know, makes that a really good question is part of the issue has been in hockey and it may have been in other sports too, is if we're training our kids now to play the game the way it is right now, by the time they get to play the pro game, it's going to be different anyway. So we're trying to, you know, a lot of coaches now are trying to, if we can create players that can compete and make decisions, no matter how the game evolves, they'll still be successful. Sorry, I'm laughing as you were talking there because I, uh, I used to play the NHL game when I was a kid and you talking about the big defensive linemen used to go around hitting people. I just remember the, I had a flashback of Chris Pronger, who I used to like <laughs> playing with. 
is he literally would be the best guy you could put him in front of the net and then he would come past him. You could give him a whack with him and they'd go absolutely flying. <laughs> yep. um, and I used to watch clips on YouTube and it was very much that. He had a, a good ability to um, yep. intimidate exactly. opponents. Um, yeah, in, in terms of, um, you, you know, that, that fluidity, I think that's something that seems more and more paramount across sports and having that. Um how do you encourage coaches to try and future um future proof their players? So you can say, like, listen, this is what we think the game is gonna look like in 10, 15 years. Because it almost goes against their conventional wisdom, as you've mentioned. Defensive coaches, we want we want defensive people that are gonna be able to keep me in a job. But also, if you know a lot of coaches will go in because they used to play and they'll go, well, this is what worked for me or this is what I learned, et cetera. So how do you, um, in your coach development role, go, listen, this is what we think the future game is looking like. This is why your players need to be able to solve problems or need to be able to make decisions or need to do all of these other aspects that you might not have had exposure to because ultimately this is where we think it's going to end up. That's again, that's a, a really good question, especially for somebody like me, because my my issue used to be, and I'm really working hard to get away from it, where as I look at coaches like, don't you see this? Why don't you why haven't you figured it? You know, because again, in my role and in I was very lucky where I could spend a couple hours a day reading, studying, and 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 seeing this. Um and so I try now to go to coaches like, hey, you developed a lot of really good players. We make them better. You know, do you think they could be better? Like, here's what are you what are you trying to accomplish here? And I'm not saying in a in a condescending way, like, hey, what do you really think you're doing here? It's like, okay, what is that? What's your goal in this? And then they say, this is what I'm trying to get. Is there a different way to get this where we're going to add some decisions or we're going to add some, you know, competition? And then almost not stroke their ego, but say, you know. I want to, you know, I think you can come up with even a more creative way, you know, to do it. And then when they, you know, or, or we'll joke around and say, hey, we were doing these same drills, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, and the game's changed, you know, but, and I'm finding sometimes it's better to have those conversations in a non-threatening situation. Maybe where a bunch of guys are around, maybe, you know, sitting around having a beer and a pizza, you know, as opposed to sitting in a, in a, a room at the rink where somebody stands up front with a PowerPoint showing you why this is better. You know, it's uh, not me telling you that you're terrible or what you're doing is bad, but how can we just make it better? Uh, I heard a great, one of the great skills trainers uh, who worked for the Pittsburgh Penguin, Ty Hennis was saying, okay, so you want to do line skating drills, all right? How about you have one line going this way, another line going that way, and maybe another line going this way. So you're still doing your technique, but what have we added? Well, we've added decision-making. We've added having our head up. We've added that if I'm going to do a technique, I have to adjust it and adapt it during the game anyway. So, you know, that way they're still getting what they feel that they need, which is that, you know, that rep repetitive thing, but they're doing it in a different way. Because, um, again, like no matter how the game evolves, a player who's intelligent and has a high, what we call high, high hockey IQ and then as a compete level, we'll adjust to whatever the game is. And we'll be able to adjust whatever a coach asks them to do. And how do you manage that dynamic 
I guess when you'll come culturally very different situations, obviously you're down in Florida, if you're going up to a guy from Minnesota who has a, a different experience of that, is it is it very similar or going, oh, okay, I'm just going to try and skillfully say, how could we make what you do even better? Or how, how do you manage that dynamic? Because the one thing I, I like, we have it in the UK, you have the South, Midlands and North, and there's a little bit of rivalry depending where you are. America's so big, like someone from LA is going to have a different experience to someone in Florida compared to New York. And some of them will be only rinks inside, whereas others might be able to lake skate. Like, it's so different. How do you manage that dynamic in terms of the different cultures in the different regions? Well, you definitely get different areas like this is the way we do it. And we produce more players, you know, and then you stop and you think that, well, you've got 5,000 more players at that age than I do. So um, and we get the reverse a lot. I'll like my practices won't have line skating. And then I get a parent come and tell me, well, this program up in Michigan that's really successful does line skating. So why aren't you? So obviously you're wrong and they're right. Um, and I try to diplomatically say, well, we've they've got, you know, hundreds more players at our age group. So it's more like those kids are surviving that than they are getting better because of that. And so you run into that thing when then if you go up north, we'll see, look at all these players that we've had, you know, why should we change? And we kind of joke with them, you know, like when we do, because so what we do now, which is very interesting, this is a good, you know, good point with it. When we do our CEP or our coaching education classes, they're by Zoom. I used to go out and do them with like a lot of coaches in my area or in the South. But now coaches from all over the country are exposed to me or my group. Like there'll be four of us from the Southeast teaching people that are from Alaska, from, from Boston, from Minnesota, from Michigan. So we get them all together and we can start talking about certain things like... Um, uh like about not you know making decisions more ha happen more often you know or with the teams that are like from minnesota where kids do have the opportunities to get on the pond is like well okay you're from california your kids can't skate outside so we got to bring the pond inside we have to you know do those things to, to catch up to that uh or you're in new mexico you may have you know 80 kids in your program so how are you going to get the most out for those 80 kids you may have to do these kinds of things. So I think it's going to be the Zoom part of it, although not as interactive maybe as we'd like, although it is fairly interactive, but not as like being in person, brings in this vast country and have all these different people from all different areas on there together discussing, you know, how to, what things they do. And we're exposing a lot of newer coaches to new concepts. What we're hearing, though, is a lot of these coaches who learning the new concepts, they really think they're great. They go back and they're an assistant coach and the coach, the head coach, like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> this is what I do. You know, so it's getting back to educating those older coaches. But USA Hockey has now added a continuing education aspect that even after you reach your highest level, you have to get so many credits over so many years continually about, you know, which, which we're hoping to then expose coaches to new ideas. Yeah, it sounds similar to what we have with the FA in, in England. You have, every season, you have to have five hours worth of CPD. 
Um, now you can acute that to your your club or so I do it by Southampton. Um, or you have to go on to courses run by the FA that allow you to create those five hours. But it is that constant learning of new ideas, new principles, new pedagogical research, all of that type of stuff, which um, supports the players. Um, I'm conscious of time and, and where we are in this. So last question for me, if I were to speak to the the, the coaches you work with um, or, or support or any of your players, how would you hope they described you in three words and why? Um, I think they would passionate. You know, I'm definitely ex- very into what I do and in, in the game and, and coaching. Um, I think too they would. Um, it's two words, but forward thinking or constantly learning. You know, they they are always hearing from me about what the newest thing that I learned that I or that I'd listened to or, or that part. Um, and then, and, uh, pairing, you know, I want my players all know that I want them to get better and that whatever we're doing is to try to get them better. And, and, and I care about them as people, as much as I do, you know, they're, they're people first and then a player second, same with my coaches. Perfect. Listen, Jim, really appreciate your time. I think a really good insight into, uh, obviously us hockey and some strategies and stuff moving forward and definitely one we could catch up again over a period of time and see see how it's progressing and um, and what the, the world of hockey is doing so yeah really appreciate your time and hopefully catch up with you again further down the road thank you for uh, having me on Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.